Good morning again. It's one thing unusual about church, I suppose, versus other gatherings is you hear good morning about six times by the time we leave, but I love it. It's good. So welcome to Grace Bible Church. It's good to see you here this morning. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 28. We've been working through the Psalms over the summer months for the past three years. This is our third summer now on the Psalms. And this morning, we will be in Psalm 28. Now, Psalm 28 marks the end of a section that we have been in since Psalm 23. Now, it's not an official section. You won't see this notated anywhere, really, in your Bible. But as I was looking at the context that we have been in now for the past several weeks, there is a bracket that these psalms fit within. So Psalm 23 opens with, we could all say it together probably, the Lord is my shepherd, okay? Now we come to the end of Psalm 28 this morning, and David is going to give this request to God saying, be the shepherd of your people. So we have shepherding on the front end, shepherding here in the last part of 28, and everything between, if you've been kind of following along, you'll notice that David has expressed in these six psalms, 23 to 28, his confidence, his hope, and his trust in God. And as I was thinking about that, I'm seeing that the confidence, the hope, the trust that David has is because of this shepherding ministry that God has revealed to David. And of course, David was a shepherd. He understood this terminology. He comes up with this word picture in his mind to help illustrate the way that God cares for him, the confidence that David can have because the Lord is his shepherd. Now, it doesn't make a huge deal if we understand this bracketing. Like I said, I don't want to make this the main point, but I think it is interesting because of what we see in both of those Psalms. So, even today, if you look in your Bible, we can open to Psalm 28. We're going to read it here just in a moment. But it probably has a heading, something like, the Lord is my strength, or the Lord is my shield, or something like that, demonstrating, once again, the surety, the, the confidence that David has that God will be to him a rock, a refuge, a place of shelter, a defense, all of those things. And I'm saying a lot of that comes from David's understanding that the Lord is his shepherd. This is why when we get to the end of the psalm today, David is going to say, be the shepherd of your people and carry them forever. He wants this ministry of God, this shepherding care to continue to all generations of his people. Now there are a couple of similarities, we're going to see really a lot of the same language that we saw last week in Psalm 27, but there is a pretty big difference too in that the order is reversed. So last week, Psalm 27, David started the psalm with this assertion of his confidence in God and then he moves on to making requests to God. Today in Psalm 28, he opens by making a request to God and then closes with this prayer of thanksgiving and confidence towards the end of the psalm. We're going to take this in three sections, uh, but before we get there, let's read together. So if you haven't, please open your Bibles to Psalm 28 and we will read this text and begin for the morning. Psalm 28, a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. 
Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let's pray together. Father, as your people, those who have been called by your name, those you have given new hearts and new affections and new desires, we come and we ask the same thing that David asked. We ask that you would be our shepherd, that you would carry us, that you would lead us, you would instruct us. God, we are so needy and we need your help. And it's not only in the areas of understanding your word and applying it, we need you there, but in every situation of our life, God, we need wisdom, we need help. What an encouragement to see that David praise and you answer him. And so God, this morning, as we look at this psalm, would you encourage our hearts as we see your not just ability to answer prayer, but your willingness. You are not stingy with your grace, but you give freely to all who ask. And so God, we ask collectively, corporately this morning as a church, come, be gracious to us, Help us to understand, to love, and to apply your word. We give you thanks for this time, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I said we're going to take this psalm in three sections. So if you want to mark these, you can. Let's identify those before we start. Verses 1 to 3, we're going to see David's prayer for distinction. We'll explain what I mean by that. Verses 4 and 5, we see a prayer for just retribution. Or you could say righteous payback is what David is asking for. And then finally, verses 6 through 9 show us David's prayer of thanksgiving. So let's start by looking at verses 1 through 3. And in this section, David is crying out to God for mercy. He is crying out for help. And he asks that he wouldn't be swept away along with the wicked. So his desire is to be marked distinct from those who will experience the righteous judgment of God against their works. We're going to see that clearly in verse 3. But starting in verse 1, the main request is that God would hear him. David says, be not deaf to me, but hear me. So what's he getting at here? Sometimes we use the phrase, uh, oh, so-and-so turned a blind eye. Or they turned a deaf ear to the situation. What do we mean when we say that? Well, let's say you say something like, oh, this week at work my supervisor just turned a blind eye to that and didn't even deal with it. 
What does that communicate? Well, that means they understand what's going on. They see what's going on. They're just choosing like, yeah, I'm not going to get involved with that. They turn a blind eye to that. Or, didn't you hear what I said? No, they just turned a deaf ear to that. That's not exactly what David is asking God to do. It's not that God is unaware of the situation. His prayer that God would hear him is not saying, God, I need you to be made aware of this situation. God knows. The prayer for God to hear him and be not silent is a prayer for God to respond. David needs to know that God hears his cry for mercy. He hears his cry for help. And how does he know that God has heard him? Because God will speak to him. God will respond to him. The last part of the verse, David says, if you are silent, in other words, if you don't acknowledge or answer, I will go down to the pit. You see that in the end of verse 1? Now, pit here is synonymous for Sheol, but it goes further in describing the innermost, deepest part, the part you don't come back from. So David is saying, in essence, God, if you are silent to me, if you don't acknowledge me, if you don't speak to me, I will die. I will go down to the pit. And I think in that phrase, in saying what David says, if God doesn't speak, he's going to die, we see the beauty and the purpose of the words of God. Do you see what's implicit in that statement? If God doesn't speak, David will die. In other words, what? The words of God bring life. The words of God bring life. This is a common theme throughout all of the Bible, isn't it? All the way back in the beginning of Israel's history, Moses is speaking to the people. They've been complaining about the food and what's going on. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is what we read. Moses says this to the people. God humbled you. God humbled you and let you hunger and he fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make known to you that man does not live on bread alone but man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see the connection? God's word brings life. And this is important because as we trace the history of redemption, as we see, starting back in Deuteronomy and even before that, we see the word of God bring sometimes literal physical life, but it brings spiritual life. It is the words of God that let us know how we should live, what we should do, what is pleasing to him. It brings life. And then as we get into the New Testament, the new covenant, we see that in the fullness of time, when everything was in place, the word, the decisive word comes and brings the words of life. And I'm, of course, referring to Jesus as the word of life. John 5, 25, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, that hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. No, he's not talking about physically dead people. He's talking about spiritually dead people, that they will hear the words of God through the mouth of Jesus and live. The word of God brings life. Or Peter, with this probably the best thing that Peter ever said, at least that we have recorded, when Jesus says, you want to go somewhere else, Peter? What does Peter say? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
The words of God bring life. And this is why we hear such desperation in David's prayers here in Psalm 28. He knows that if God doesn't speak, if he is silent, David will perish. He needs the words of God to bring life to him. Not just rescue, not just relief from the situation, but life. And this shows us, among other things, how absolutely seriously and deeply David treasures the Word of God. I mean, you you can't read the Psalms without getting this flavor of David's total dependence and love for the Word of God. It's all over the place. So we see this desperation in David. And also in verse 2 now, David asks to hear him when he lifts his hands towards the sanctuary. Now this is a Hebrew idiom. The lifting of one's hands was an act of worship, of course, and we recognize that. But it is also a sign of dependence. That there's nothing in David's hands. He's not bringing something to God and saying, look, look, here's what I have. Now, now help me because I brought this to you. There is nothing There is nothing, there is a total dependence on God here in this lifting of his hands towards the sanctuary. This reminded me this week, we sing this quite often. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. That's in the bottom of David's heart. He's not commending himself to God by what he offers to God. But he raises his hands and he says, help me, hear me, answer me. And God does. This this was his humble posture as David makes this request to God. Now verse 3, as we keep moving, is the place where we see David's desire for distinction. As he asks not to be dragged away with the wicked. Now David understands, he, he knows that there is a day of judgment coming. Judgment is a moral necessity when it comes to the ways of the wicked, right? God will not tolerate indefinitely people defaming him and belittling him and treating him as if he does not exist. God's justice kicks in and will render judgment to everyone. And David knows that. He knows that this has to happen. And so he prays to God Okay, I know judgment is coming. Don't let me get swept away with the wicked. I haven't acted that way. I don't follow their path. You remember from a couple weeks ago and from Psalm 1, he doesn't stand with the wicked, he doesn't sit with the scoffers. All of that we've covered. So David says when this judgment comes, when this just retribution comes, don't let me get swept away. Don't let me get carried away in this. Nothing stings us quite like injustice. If you work with kids, you know fairness is at the top of the list of priorities for children. And you know what? That doesn't change. None of us like to be mistreated. None of us like to be falsely accused. None of us appreciate it when you're reading a book and the protagonist, the hero of the story, gets wrongfully accused and thrown in prison. We get, we get angry about that. What are you doing? He didn't deserve that. David appeals to the sense of justice and God saying, don't, don't do this. Don't, don't come and sweep me away. Or I love the word, don't let me be dragged away with the wicked. There's a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And haven't we seen this from the day one in the Psalms? 
It's almost the roadmap of the entire book. As the psalmists lay out the path of the righteous, their love for God, their desire to follow God, and the path of the wicked. And David is saying, make this distinction. Don't let me get wrongfully swept up into this judgment and this punishment. Now, we cannot move past this section before we make a connection to Jesus, our Savior. Oftentimes, we see in the Psalms, and we've seen this all over, how David prefigures Jesus, or he is a type of Jesus. You remember what that means? That the way that David acts or makes decisions or does not act are types. They foreshadow what Jesus would do, and in knowing that, we get a better picture or a clearer picture. But that's not always the case. Sometimes there is something called an antitype. Meaning that it's not that we see Jesus acting just like David or David just like Jesus, but we see them acting contrary to one another, differently than one another. And that's what I think we see here. Here's what I mean. David asks God not to allow him to be dragged off with the wicked. He does not want to be counted among the sinful so that he's not condemned along with them. But is that what we see in Jesus' life, in his ministry? Do we see Jesus saying, don't let this happen. I don't want to be accounted with them. I don't want to be dragged off with the wicked. No. No, we see something different. Jesus is willingly dragged off with the wicked. He is hanged on a cross in a total act of injustice between two sinners or two workers of evil, to use Psalm 28 language. And he does this not only because he is a type of David, but because he is better than David. We shouldn't read this and just say, yeah, Jesus is the same as David. We should see this as the greaterness of Jesus because he is willing to be dragged away for you and for me. He is David's son. He is in the line of David, but he is also David's Lord who does what David would not do. So, at times we see type, at times we see anti-type. But Jesus, in this case, is anti-type. He is willingly dragged away and suffers the condemnation that each one of us deserves so that we can have eternal life. Brad just referenced this in the exhortation this morning. 1 Peter 1 Keep in mind the language we just heard in Psalm 28. Listen to this again. Since you have been born again, that's life. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through what? The living and abiding words of God. Hear that? Word of God brings life. Word of God brings life. It's exactly what's going on here in Psalm 28. We have eternal life we have eternal security because Jesus was not like David in this regard, but was dragged away to suffer injustice so that we could be made righteous. Huh. What a Savior. Next section, verses 4 and 5, we see David's prayer for just retribution. Or like I said, you could say righteous punishment. I use the word retribution here because I think that's exactly what David is after. Payback. He wants the wicked repaid for what they have done. 
in English, these first three words of verse 4, give to them, is the word that was used for wages. Okay, you do a work, you put in 40 hours, you should get paid for those 40 hours. That's the way that it goes. You earned that. That is wage, that is owed. Okay, and that is the phrase that he's using here to say, okay, the wicked have done wicked works, therefore they justly deserve wicked payment. So he's not asking for something inordinate. He's not asking for something disproportional or far greater. He is simply saying, God, I know you are a God of justice. I know you are a righteous God. Give it to them. Give them what they deserve because of their works. Now, what's the big issue here? What has David so exercised that he is calling on God to pay back the wicked according to their deeds? Look at verse 5. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. You know what it means to not regard? They don't understand. They don't perceive. They don't discern. They don't acknowledge. They do not love what God has done. Or in layman's terms... We can say they don't give a rip about God or anything that he has done. And doesn't this remind you of Romans 1? It's the same thing. In Romans 1, Paul's saying people have done this, they've rejected God, they don't worship him as they should, so give them what they want, hand them over. Same kind of language here in Psalm 28, where David is saying the wicked have acted wickedly, therefore give them what they are owed. Give them their wages. But notice in verse 5, There are two different things being referenced. So David says, judge them because they do not acknowledge your works or the work of your hands. What's that about? Is that just Hebrew repetition for emphasis? Or is there something else at play here? I think these are two separate things. David could have just said it once, but he says it twice, and I'm going to tell you why I think this is really important. When David says the works of God and the works of of his hands, he is speaking in absolute harmony with the rest of the Bible. So all throughout Scripture, the work of God is generally, and I say generally because there are certainly exceptions, but on the main, the works of God are divided into two categories. Work in creation, work in redemption. Okay? So as you read the Scriptures and you read about the works of God, it generally falls into one of those two categories. God's works of creation... The world, the moon, the stars, you and I, animals, dirt, sea, rocks, grass, all that kind of stuff. And his work in redemption. What he has accomplished through Jesus Christ and applied through his spirit to save his people. These are the two main categories into which almost all of the works of God fit. So when God's works are put on display, when attention is called to his works and what he has done, it is usually associated either with redemption or creation. In the Psalms alone, 37 times the works of God are referenced. And that doesn't do anything for talking about his ways, his deeds, his wondrous acts. Those are all in addition, but 37 times his works are referenced. And it talks about them in both redemptive and creative works. I'm just going to give you two quick examples. This is important, so hang with me. Psalm 104, 24, I'm going to read this. You tell me which one this is talking about. O Lord, how manifold are your works. 
In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. What's that talking about? Creation or redemption? Creation, right? It's talking about the, the works of God's creative power in the earth. Okay, Psalm 103. Here's what we read, starting in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or punish us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. That all falls under the categories of the Lord works righteousness. So what is that talking about? His work of redemption. How he deals with sin. How he extends mercy. So you get the, you get the rhythm here? The works of God in creation, the works of God in redemption. So when David says, now back to Psalm 28, when David says that the wicked do not regard the works of the Lord, I'm saying this is referring to redemption, and when he says they do not regard the work of his hands, I'm saying that refers to creation. In other words, the wicked reject the totality, the entirety of who God is. There are some people who would say, well sure, I believe that some deity created the world, I believe that God is powerful enough to create but I don't think he has anything to do with salvation, with redemption, or the other way around. So by David saying this, by saying they don't acknowledge anything that God does, whether in creation or redemption, he is calling attention to the entirety of the rejection, the totality of the way that the wicked reject God. And this is enough in David's mind to call down judgment on these people who would reject God in such a way. And this shows us among other things, the degree to which David values and reveres God and his works. I mean, David's life is so bent on exalting God, on drawing attention to his works, on living in such a way that the glory of God is magnified in his life, that when others around him ignore and defame and belittle and reject God, it gets him mad. And I'm with David here. As the people of God, I mean, I could spend the rest of the morning just recounting the blessings we have because of being a child of God. As his people, when those around us treat God as if he doesn't exist, when his name is belittled, when he is mocked, when he is neglected, when he is trampled, when he is dragged through the mud, that should get us mad. This is God we are talking about. The God of creation and the God of redemption. The God without whom none of us would exist. So I get it. When David looks around and says, these people don't give one hoot about what God is doing and that ticks me off, I say, yeah, it should. It should. We should be upset when God is ignored. But before you sharpen your pitchfork and light your torches, let me remind you of what we're seeing here in Psalm 28. David does not take it upon himself 
to be God's agent of vengeance. David does not say to God, oh man, I see all of this wickedness around. I see how they treat you. I see how they mock you. I see how they reject you. I'm going to go get them for you. I'm going to help you out and I'm going to go be your agent of justice for you. That's not at all what he says. Rather, he asks God to repay them. He asks God to give them their due. He asks God to tear them down. Now, I'm not saying there's never a time for action. There is. It's just not in this text. David trusts that God values his own name, that he reveres his own glory enough that he will act to uphold it. And it is not wrong for David and it is not wrong for us to call on God to act in keeping with his character. Do you know that? It is not wrong for us to call on God and say, God, do something. Fix this. Defend yourself. Act. Judge. It's got to be really careful that we do not read verses 4 and 5 and interject ourselves into the psalm as the agent of God's vengeance. I think a far better thing for us to do, something that would carry greater, stronger testimony, is that if we acted opposite of what we see in these verses. Meaning, as God's people, we should regard the works of the Lord, right? This is what David is so mad about. He says, they don't regard your works. They're doing all these evil things. Well, then what should we do? We should regard the works of God. And I'm talking public regard. I'm talking verbal affirmation. Celebrate what God has done in creation. Celebrate what God has done in redemption. It is all around us. You don't have to look very far. It is our privilege and responsibility to communicate the truth of God, His power, His glory, His ways to everyone around us. That is called spreading the gospel. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't know what to say to your unbelieving neighbor that you see every single day? Ask him what he's doing mowing his grass. Did you know where grass comes from? Let me tell you about the creator God who made everything. Acknowledge the works of God. That is what David is getting after here. Now, let's close by looking at verses 6 through 9 and we're going to see David's prayer of thanksgiving. If we do what I just talked about from verses 4 and 5. If we celebrate the works of God, if we acknowledge all that He has done, that will produce in us an attitude of thanksgiving. You cannot acknowledge all that God has done and not have a thankful heart. Or maybe you're completely cold to it. But thanksgiving is what this produces in David. Now, we don't see the word thanksgiving in the section. But verse 7, he says that with his song, he gives thanks to God. So we can ask, okay, what is it that prompts David to give thanks to God? What is the motivating factor to this prayer of thankfulness now that he offers to the Lord? Well, look back to the top of the psalm, to verse 2, right? He says, O Lord, I call to you, my rock, be not deaf to me. And he says, I'm going to go to the pit. If you don't, look at verse 2. Hear my voice and my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. So that was up in verse 2. Now look at verse 6. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. It is the answer to David's prayer that motivates him and causes him to be thankful to God. 
I prayed that this would happen. It happened. Praise God. That's the Cliff Notes version of what's going on here. And I think it's a really good note. If you look at the text, you read it top to bottom, there does not seem to be an obvious passage of time or an extended passage of time between verse 2 and verse 6, right? It does not say, oh Lord, 12 years ago I prayed that you would give me mercy and hear my prayers, and now you've done it. It doesn't say that at all. It simply says, I asked God for this, and praise God he did it. So what's going on there? Well, either David's prayer for mercy was answered immediately or he has such rock-solid confidence in God that God will answer his prayer that he can speak in this way. I think either one would fit. I am more inclined to think that David here is not so much recounting what happened in the last five years as he is recounting everything that's happened over his whole life. Think about this, the, the, the faithfulness that God has shown to David from the beginning and the many times that we can look, you read through First and Second Samuel, you read through the Psalms, you read through David's writing, the faithfulness of God is this repeated theme that David comes back to over and over and over again. So I think because of this first-hand knowledge, the understanding that God, as his shepherd, will hear and answer his prayer motivates David to say, yes, yes and amen. God has heard my prayer and he will answer my prayers. This is what it means for God to be a shepherd, for him to care for his people. And I just, I pray that as a church, we come to trust in God like this, to hope in God like this. David makes these declarations now, verses 7 and 8, before making one final request at the end in verse 9. And this is really similar. This is one of the real similar areas to what we saw last week in Psalm 27, with God being the strength of his life and his saving refuge. He says, you're my saving refuge. Now, that's the same word from last week, translated stronghold. And we talked about what that meant. So that means that for David, for the Lord's anointed, God is his stronghold, his impenetrable fortress. When David is in need, when he needs help, protection, he can go to God. And he has confidence that God is the immovable stronghold of his life. But notice how David identifies himself. He says that he is the Lord's anointed. This is significant because it places David in the flow of redemptive history. So David is not just kind of a blip on the radar king as in any other king of the surrounding nations. He is the Lord's anointed, his Mashiach, the word that would later become known as Messiah. That's what Messiah means, the anointed of the Lord. And David, as the anointed of the Lord, makes God his refuge, his stronghold. He turns away from self-reliance. He turns away from his own strength. And he says, God is the strength of my life. God is my refuge. And who does the same thing? Jesus. Jesus comes and he relies totally on the Father. So here we see another good picture of the connection from David to the Messiah. Now, the psalm ends with this request for God to be the shepherd of his people. That is, to lead them, to provide for them, to do all the things that a shepherd does for his sheep. And David makes explicit one area, carry them forever. 
See that in the very end of verse 9? This shepherding language is somewhat unique, and I said at the beginning it marks the end of this kind of section here in the Psalms, but it's unique for a couple of reasons. First, David has moved from individual language to corporate language. You see that earlier in the Psalm, it's all... I cry to you, if you don't hear me, this is going to happen. If you don't respond, I call you to do this. And now he shifts, and this is pretty common in the Psalms, he shifts to corporate or national language. When he asks God to be the shepherd of his people and to carry his people, we get the picture of a shepherd who literally puts a sheep up on his shoulders. You've probably all seen a picture or a painting or something like that of a shepherd carrying a sheep. I think that's a good picture for what David is talking about here in this psalm, because it communicates something. When you see, you know, kind of the big strapping shepherd guy, he's got this tiny little lamb up on his shoulders, what do you think of the lamb in that moment? Do you think, boy, that's one tough lamb. Boy, he could sure do some damage if he wanted to. No. That's a picture of neediness. That's a picture of dependence. For David to ask God to carry his people as a shepherd communicates that, you know what, there are times as God's people, in fact, this is kind of all the time, we don't have what it takes. We cannot do for ourselves what needs to be done. We cannot carry ourselves, and we need someone stronger. We need a shepherd who will carry us forever. You see that? This is not a temporary request. David is not saying to God, you know what, right at the moment, we're really in a pickle and we could use your shepherding abilities to carry us until we get out of this pit and then we're going to tuck you back away where you belong. That's not it. David says, be the shepherd of your people and carry us forever. This is long term. This is yesterday, today, and forever kind of language. Carry your people forever. And you know what? I think the reason this is so encouraging is David's request here at the end of Psalm 28 for God to shepherd his people was eventually answered. But it wasn't answered in David's time. If you read the book of Ezekiel, which I'm sure many of you do on a regular basis, but if you read Ezekiel, you will see God calling the leaders of Israel to account. So in the 30s, in the chapters of the 30s, 34, 35, 36, God is calling out the shepherds. And by shepherds, he means leaders, those who are supposed to be caring for the people. And he says, you haven't been doing a good job of this. You have not walked according to my ways. You have not led the people. You have not protected them. In fact, you've abused my sheep. And he is angered by the lack of shepherding care that these leaders are giving to his people. So this is what he says, Ezekiel 34, 22. I will rescue my flock, this is God. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. So David says, Psalm 28, 9, save your people, bless your heritage, be their shepherd. Okay? God says, I'm going to set up one who will be their shepherd. So, tell me, who is this David-like 
shepherd character who is going to carry his people forever. Who is ultimately the answer to David's prayer from Psalm 28, 9? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, right? Jesus comes on the scene and he says, John 10, I am the good shepherd. No, that's not just a throwaway phrase, is it? That's not just so you can have a cute children's Sunday school thing with the lamb and the shepherd and the whatever. Jesus, by saying, I am the good shepherd, connects himself not only to Ezekiel 34 and the fulfillment of that prophecy, but all the way back to Psalm 28. When David says, God, be the shepherd of your people, carry us forever, God hears that prayer, God answers that prayer, but he does it through Christ. So Jesus comes as the good shepherd to carry his people forever. And I make this connection for us as we close because it tells us what I think is the main point of this psalm. And that is the truth that God hears and answers prayer. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has the ability and the willingness to hear the requests that we bring to him as his people because of Christ in the power of the Spirit and that he will answer those things? David believed that. He had confidence in God. Now, I don't know what you're waiting for. I think all of us have prayed things to God, requests made known to him, burdens on our heart. We've not got an answer yet. This specific prayer of David's didn't get answered for a very long time, but it did get answered. So in the meantime, whatever your prayer has been to the Lord, I want you to leave here today knowing he heard you, he hears you, and he will answer those prayers. You might not see it. And that's the really hard part, isn't it? When you pray for something, the salvation of a loved one, the change of a circumstance, the fixing of what's broken, whatever it may be, you pray for it and you just don't hear anything. In those times, we need to look back on the faithfulness of God, remember that he has never, ever failed to answer his children when they pray, and we can have confidence that our shepherd will carry us forever. So I want you to trust God more than you did when you walked in this morning. Trust him. He hears you. He'll answer you in his good time. Let's pray. Father, we often find ourselves in places of waiting. We find ourselves having bared our soul to you and cried out to you in frustration or hurt or anger or remorse, joy. We cry out to you and at times, Lord, we just don't, we don't hear right away from you. And of course, that could be because our hearts need to change and we need to draw close to you and be in your word, but there are times which we don't understand why, but in your sovereign providence, you, you do not answer in the ways that we want you to or the time that we do. So God, I pray for each one of us here at Grace that we would look at this psalm, at Psalm 28, 
we would see David's confidence that you will hear and answer prayer, that we would remember that you did this for him, you did answer David's prayers, Lord, and would you give us hope and confidence in you? None of us want to live a life of instability and uncertainty. We want to have hope and confidence, and we praise you, God, that you have made this possible because of Jesus Christ by sending your Son to do all that was required and then sending your Spirit into the world, God. We have this amazing gift that can give us confidence in you. So whatever it is that we are bringing before you, God, would you give us hope that you are faithful, that you are able and you are willing to answer our prayer. You hear us. You're never deaf to our situation, but you always answer in your time and in your way. So God, as many of us are in a season of waiting, would you strengthen our faith? Would you give us hope that you are true and you are righteous and you are good and you will do all things according to your will. So God, help us with this. Help us to encourage one another as we wait together and in everything we do, in the waiting, in the working, in the living out of the Christian life, would Jesus Christ be praised. And it's in his name that I pray, amen. Amen.